continue our morning worship and go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, loving God, we thank you for this time and this space. We thank you for this community that is gathered here. Lord, there are people in this room who have not yet fully understood how deep and wide and high and powerful your love is for them. And so, Lord, I pray that as we're here today, that um, your grace is uh, felt. And, uh, Lord, as we are sitting here and listening to the message that you've um, prepared for John and you've laid on his heart, I pray that whatever we are carrying with us that might prevent us from hearing your words, that we're able to just set it down and to leave it and to uh, fully trust in your goodness and your mercy. Lord, I ask for your um, continued love and mercy on those who are in healing right now, uh, those who are recovering from surgery, those who are awaiting news from doctors and health reports. Lord, we just pray for your, your mercy, and we're grateful for your love. Thank you for this community. Thank you for the beauty of your church. And uh, we thank you for the gift of baptism. And we love you and we honor you. And in the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Amber. Uh, well, if we don't know each other, my name is John Carroll. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Hope Covenant Church. And we are wrapping up our series called This Is Us, about the inescapable awkwardness and importance of community. And today we're going to be exploring the role that generosity plays in our church community. And to start, I want to contrast two different ways of accumulating wealth, what might be called the way of conventional wisdom and the way of unconventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is that money is just about math. The more you get, the richer you are. If you give some, then you're left with fewer, so you lose. It's just a numbers game. So to illustrate, I have several stacks of money on this little stool here, and this is a stack of 10 $1 bills, so $10. If I give $1 away, then I have nine left. If I don't give any away, then I have 10 left. So I'm richer if I don't give. I'm poorer if I do give. It's just a numbers deal. And then this is a stack of 10 $10 bills. So altogether, this is $100. Now, this is a little bit more money, so I might be more reluctant to give it away. Somebody comes up to me and says, hey, can I borrow a dollar? Sure, no big deal. But somebody says, hey, can I borrow $10? Ooh, I don't know. It's 10 bucks. So we're talking about tithing. And if you're interested in tithing or giving, you want to start doing it when you're younger. Because when you, when you have less money. Because the more money you have, the harder it is to give it away. And then this is a stack of 10 $100 bills. So this is $1,000. And I start thinking, there's quite a lot I could do with $1,000. And if I give one away of you know, these, that's $100. And I think, there's a lot I could do with $100. So I don't know if I want to give it away. And so money has a way of playing with your mind. Money does funny things to us. We're all kind of that way. Conventional wisdom is make as much as you can and keep as much as you make. Because the more you give, the less you have. And the less you give, the more you have. If you give nothing, then you have the maximum amount that you could. If you have $10 and you give one, 10 minus one is nine. 
But if you have $10 and you give nothing, then 10 minus zero is 10. So everybody with me so far? I know this is deep. I understand. In other words, conventional wisdom is it's just math. Keeping is the better strategy to get rich than giving. It's just math. It's just numbers. And there's another way. That is the way of unconventional wisdom. It's counterintuitive. It's talked about all through history from a lot of folks, but none more clearly than Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now you notice, this is not a command. Jesus is not saying here, you ought to give. I mean, you should, but that's not what he's saying here. This is an observation about the way life works, about the way things are. This is a claim that conventional wisdom is wrong, and you can test this. There are moments when the heart is generous, and then it knows. What's interesting is, when you start to look for it, you see this claim, this other way, this unconventional wisdom all throughout the Bible. You can find it in the Old Testament, in places like Proverbs. This is what Proverbs 11.24 says. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Once again, this is a claim. It's possible to test this. When it comes to resources, finances, generosity, conventional wisdom is wrong. The old math will actually lead you astray. Before People before Jesus knew about this. Jesus knew it. And people who followed Jesus knew this. And here's one more passage. This is from the Apostle Paul. There are dozens of, of them all throughout Scripture. This is just one of them. Okay, Paul writes this. He says, remember this. Whoever sows, sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He goes on to say, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This is a claim that he's making here. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. 2 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I want you to think of generosity, not in terms of having or losing, but sowing and reaping. And this puts it in another category. This shifts the paradigm. Think about Paul's picture for a moment. Our world has seen some really brilliant ideas that have shaped the way we live. Things like the Industrial Revolution 
or more recently, the technological revolution. However, in the history of the human race, there has only been one economic revolution. For who knows how long human beings roamed the earth from one place to another. They lived one day to the next. They scavenged and foraged for food wherever they could find it. They couldn't build communities or create culture or institutions. Until one day, the greatest innovator in human history, by the way, we don't even know who this person is, but the greatest innovator in human history made a discovery and looked for some investors and told them, I want you to give me whatever grains, whatever seeds you found that you have been storing up so that you could eat them. And instead of keeping them to eat, which is what we've always done, I'm going to put them in the ground. I know this sounds stupid. I get it. But I've discovered something about the nature of reality previously unknown to the human race that's going to blow your mind. If you take your supply of seed and put it in the ground, I'll call this sowing, something happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. And I don't understand it. I don't get it. But it's like something up in the sky says there's something in the ground. Hey, wake up. Come alive. Grow. And it does. I know it sounds crazy, but it works. Trust me. Run a little test. Now, this is the very first startup. It's actually how startups got their name. You know, you put a little seed in the ground, and it starts up. Oh, come on. That's funny. Thank you. Man, it's a tough crowd. How do we get startups? Thank you. I always count on you. Well, God says that generosity is that way. Money is that way. Take some of what you have. God told Israel 10% and sow it. Give it away. Sounds crazy. I know it does. But if you do, but if you do, something happens. Some kind of power gets unleashed. It's like something in the sky says there's something in the earth. Wake up. Come alive. Grow. And it does. If you sow richly, you will reap richly. Give, and it will be given to you. You'll understand, this is not about the prosperity gospel. You know, this is not a sneaky way to get affluent or rich. In fact, if you're aiming to get affluent, you'll go wrong every time. The Apostle Paul says this, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And you may be thinking, somebody ought to put this claim to the test to see if it really works. And as it turns out, somebody did. This past week, I came across the book, The Paradox of Generosity. It's written by two sociologists at the University of Notre Dame, Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson. They researched and studied the impact of generosity on the lives of real people. They surveyed over 2,000 folks in a national survey and did in-depth interviews with hundreds of people. They used the best tools of social science to look at the questions of, what does generosity do for people? Is the conventional wisdom right? If you give it away, do you lose it? Or is the unconventional wisdom right? And I'll give you this little summary. This is what Christian Smith says. Generosity generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. 
By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. And letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not a philosophical or religious teaching. It's a sociological fact. He goes on to say, the generosity paradox can also be stated in a negative. By grasping on to what we currently have, we lose out on better goods that we might have gained. In holding on to what we possess, we diminish its long-term value to us. By always protecting ourselves against future uncertainties and misfortunes, we are affected in ways that make us more anxious about uncertainties and vulnerable to future misfortunes. In short, by failing to care for others, we do not properly take care of ourselves. This is an amazing study. Whatever you think about the Bible or other spiritual traditions that talk about generosity, just based on research that's been tested, they look at two different ways of life. The generous heart, people who regularly, freely give a significant portion of their valued resources, of their time and their money away to others to help others, versus the ungenerous heart. They look at real people who do not regularly and freely give away their valued resources, their time and their money to others. As it turns out, in every dimension studied, in your happiness, in your physical health, in your having a purpose for living, in the avoidance of depression, and in personal growth, generous people are enriched in every way, and ungenerous people are diminished in every way. It turns out, Jesus was right. Go figure. It turns out that ungenerosity actually costs more than generosity in every regard. And so to illustrate how this works, I'm going to look at maybe the most ungenerous heart in the Bible. It belonged to a guy named Pharaoh. And this is what it says in the book of Exodus. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Now, the reason that little phrase is in there is in the book of Genesis, it's actually the work of Joseph and his people Israel that enriched Egypt and Pharaoh so much. But there is a Pharaoh who has no gratitude in his heart. So it says, then a, uh, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And the Israelites built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson found that one of the ways generosity leads to flourishing is that generosity tends to reduce what they call maladaptive self-absorption. That's a big phrase, maladaptive self-absorption. And it turns out that ungenerous people tend to fixate on themselves and ruminate over their problems and degenerate into obsessive egocentrism. Pharaoh is kind of the poster child for maladaptive self-absorption. All he can think about is himself. And it makes his heart hollow. 
I have to have more slaves so I can have more bricks, so I can have more storage units, so I can keep more grain, so I can hoard more wealth. People ask, how much do you have? Pharaoh says, not enough. How much do you need? He says, more. Pharaoh is the richest guy in Egypt, yet he's the most financially insecure guy in Egypt. He is miserable over what he might lose. It's a miserable life. Smith and Davidson also found ungenerous hearts pay a relational cost. And we see this later in Exodus in chapter 5. Moses is sent to Pharaoh, and Moses tells him this. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Here's what Pharaoh doesn't say. Okay? Pharaoh doesn't say, Moses, tell me more. How are your people doing? Are the working conditions okay? Is everybody getting enough to eat? Do people have enough opportunities for advancement? How's the morale amongst the group? Because Pharaoh knows that if he's generous with them, if he allows them time off, it means less bricks for him. So he's not going to be generous. His goal is more bricks. He needs Israel to be more motivated. Well, how do you motivate people well? Well, Pharaoh has an idea. And the text says, That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. He said, You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people. And then Pharaoh says to the Israelites, and you know, people would more often say this to people who have less. He says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. People with ungenerous hearts have a way of uh, developing a distorted view of other people, and it leaves them all alone. While writing this message, I stopped to think about people who are on the receiving end of of a distorted view from the rest of the population. And the first group that came to my mind was the homeless. Not long ago, researchers conducted studies using brain scans and neuroimaging. And what they discovered was that when people looked at images of extreme poverty, of people who were poor, the same part of their brain is active as when they look at things, at objects. In other words, at the brain level, at the level of our deeply embodied selves, we don't think of the homeless as people with the same hopes and feelings and dreams and hurts as us. The number one emotional response to the poor in our day is contempt. Babies don't do that. Little children don't do that. We have to learn to look at the poor with contempt. And we do. What's really interesting is when Jesus came to earth, he was God in the flesh. He was God incarnate. And he had things to say like, birds have their nests, Foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has no place to lay his head. In other words, he was homeless. 
And I want to say this to everybody here who is a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not, but this is just for you if you follow Jesus. My friend Shane Claiborne, who teaches in the Apprentice Experience, put it like this. You cannot worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. He says, when you see one of these, you're looking at me. When I'm on the street and I see a homeless person, when I see somebody who's really poor, the same part of my brain ought to light up that would light up if I was looking at Jesus. Generous hearts start to move towards this. Generous hearts begin to build bridges. Ungenerous hearts build walls. People who keep clutching and holding on to this get a little poorer every year and in every way. Another cost is ungenerous people have a lower sense of meaning and purpose in their lives when they wake up every day. Instead of being the oppressor of Israel, which Pharaoh was, he could have been the hero of Israel. He could have said, I want you to go. I want you to worship your God. I'm giving you that freedom. I'll be your benefactor. I'll be your champion. I'll believe in you. I'll be your friend. He could have been the Abraham Lincoln of Israel. They would have built statues for him. They would have cheered him and loved him. But instead of doing that, he was building himself a pyramid. Does anybody remember what goes inside a pyramid? He was saying, I'm going to build the world's greatest building. And then when I die, I'll move my dead carcass in there. And everybody will go, wow, how impressive is that? Ungenerous hearts end up living for wretched, miserable little egos. And they build giant monuments into which their dead carcass can be moved. They could have lived for a noble cause, but they didn't. Another cost of the ungenerous heart Christian Smith found is anxiety. Ungenerous people become increasingly anxious people. It turns out that ungenerous people rationalize their ungenerosity by convincing themselves year after year, day after day, that the world is a place of scarcity, that the world is a place where there aren't enough resources. They think, I have to hang on to everything I can because my clutching is actually justified by what a wretched, wretched world it is. And here's the thing. As long as money is the primary source of my security, money will be the primary source of my anxiety. Let me say that again. As long as money is the primary source of my security, money will be the primary source of my anxiety. It's just that way. That's just why we live in the most affluent age in human history, in the middle of unbelievable financial anxiety. Smith puts it like this, practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception of living in a world of abundance and blessing. Jesus said one day, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them every day. It turns out practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception 
of living in a world of abundance and blessing. One day, Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus said that. This homeless man who had no nest, who had no hole. It turns out that practicing generosity requires and reinforces the perception of living in the world of abundance and blessing, which also increases happiness and health. It turns out the world we inhabit is located in a spiritual reality that favors generosity. It turns out you are hardwired to give. It turns out you reap what you sow. Smith and Davidson wrote about the joy of people who have discovered this. One of the generous people they studied and wrote about in their book is a guy named Ken Walker, someone who's generous with both his time and his money, and he also gives blood. Now, I know that most of you don't think that getting poked by a needle and giving blood is a joyous thing. I don't, I don't either. But this is basically what Ken said. He says, I'm extremely competitive. I started giving blood at work. I think they came in three or four times a year. I would give blood. I was also training hard and really fit. They would come and give instructions about the pint and that it should take four minutes to give a pint of blood and how everybody's blood typically comes out with all that brown sludge, chocolate syrup color. Mine was eraser pink and I'm just cranking out a pint in two minutes and 47 seconds. He's actually timing it. And they're like, what are you doing? He says, I'm like, I'm winning. The guy is pouring out his blood, and he thinks he's winning. Oddly enough, it turns out that having your body give blood and have to regenerate blood actually boosts the oxygen content in your blood, in your body. It actually makes your blood transport more efficient. It turns out that even your body even your blood is somehow hardwired to give. What a weird world. It's like give and it will be given to you, even in your blood. Somebody ought to test that. Maybe you. When it comes to financial generosity, God says, test me in this. Just test me in it. You can do your own little experiment. Several people and families are already doing that at our church. And that's part of why I'm so pumped. I'm so unapologetic about generosity. Now, here are a couple questions about generosity because messages like this you know, typically raise some questions. Some folks wonder, hey, I'm married. My spouse and I are on very different pages when it comes to money and tithing and generosity. What should I do? I would just say around that one, that God understands. And this might be a good chance if you're married uh, to get together and talk together about your financial goals and what you want your life to look like. And just be patient. And I know folks in marriages where one person wanted to tithe, you know, one person wanted to give generously, but the other one didn't, so that one might do it on their own income stream, but not the other, not their spouses. So just make the best arrangement that you can that will strengthen and not strain your relationship together. Here's another question that comes up. I tithe with my time, so I don't have to tithe with my money. Is that correct? 
And that idea is actually not in the Bible. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Smith and Davidson discovered that generous people tend to be generous with both their money and their time. And ungenerous people tend to be ungenerous with their money and their time. The two tend very much to go hand in hand. In fact, when God delivered Israel from slavery, he gave them both the practice of tithing, where he says, I want you to regard the first 10% of your income as mine. It belongs to me. And also the practice of Sabbath. God said, I want you to regard the first day of the week as mine, as belonging to me. Of course, that had very serious financial implications. The people of Israel were not observing the Sabbath in Egypt. Pharaoh would never allow something like that because that was one day a week of bricks for Pharaoh. It's like God is saying, hey, Israel, 90% of your income with my blessing is better than 100% without it. Hey, Israel, six days of your week with my blessing is more time than seven days. Test me in this. And I don't know about you, but frankly, I can be somewhat stingier with my time. I sometimes hoard my time even more than my money. And we want to be a church that's financially generous, but also alive in serving and volunteering. Maybe growing in generosity for you will be, God, how are you calling me to be generous with my time and my energy and my talents, as well as with my money? Because give, and it will be given to you. That's the reality in which we live. As you sow, you will reap. One day, the greatest man who ever lived said this, Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In the same way, anyone who holds on to their life will lose it. But if you let it go in reckless love, you will have it forever, real and eternal. And that's a claim. And somebody ought to test that. And somebody did. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus poured out his blood like he thought he was winning. And they buried his dead body in the ground like you do a seed, like you do a kernel of wheat. And then, and I know it sounds crazy, something happened. Some kind of power got unleashed. Someone in the sky said to someone in the ground, wake up, come alive. And he did. It's true. It's all true. It's the reality in which we live. It's the moments when the hearts are generous, and then it knows. This is your moment, and this is your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the truth about us, about me. I just have a clutchy little heart. And God, I pray for me and for everybody in this room that you will help us to die to all the clutching and the fear and the anxiety 
and the self-obsession that kills us. That you help us die to all of that. Just bury it all. And come alive. God, I want to live in a world where little birds are fed by a heavenly father and lilies come up with a beauty that is so breathtaking. I want to live in that reality and security and ease and freedom that Jesus knew. I want to have a heart, God, that aches and eyes that look with great love and hands that are wide open to folks who have nothing, who are poor, who suffer, to be a brother and a sister. And our best selves, God, we all want that. So would you help us, God? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.